I gotta tell you, I really hate the news. Uh, and I know that hate is a really strong word, but I, but I honestly, I think it's, it's pretty appropriate here. There's just so much about it that I, 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 I'm tired of that I can't stand. I, I don't even watch like the nightly news on TV. We, we don't have that, but I, you know, I, I, I hate the news on social, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, even it's creeping into Instagram. It used to be a photo platform, but now we've got news stations there too. You know why it, 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 it's such a big deal, why I, I dislike it so much? Because so much of the news that we read is bad. You always seem to have to dig to get to the good news stories. They're, they're not the top of the line. They don't make the headlines quite as often, do they? You know what? I, I struggle even more with the news as a follower of Jesus. It's, it's really hard to find good church news these days. I know it's there, but when we open up our, our newspapers, when we open up our Twitter feeds, when we open up wherever, man, it's not always a good light being shined on churches. Now, I know that most of what, or much of what the secular world says about the church is untrue. I, I know that, that studies show that those who belong to a religious community, those who are followers of Jesus, typically exhibit lower rates of depression and anxiety. It doesn't mean it's not there, it doesn't mean, it, mean it's not a part of our story, but that it's lower rates. Uh, typically, uh, our marriages are better. Uh, we're typically followers of Jesus are more generous than the average North American. But these things, they're, they're hard to find and often overshadowed in the news. Some days as well, my feed just seems inundated. My news feed and stream just seems inundated with examples of attacks against the gospel and against the kingdom of God. So much so that I just want to throw my hands up and just kind of, just kind of give up. You know what? Let's, why not? pick up, move to some little island somewhere where I can be completely detached from this news and just kind of the rest of the world and just do my thing. It's just, it's too big. So often it's too much. I can't deal with much of it. And it seems like there's nothing that I can do about it. I suspect I'm not the only one that feels like this from time to time. Well, as we get into Nehemiah chapter four, We'll see that this thing that I'm wrestling with, that I suspect some of you are wrestling with as well, is nothing new. We've come through this book so far, and, and to this point, for Nehemiah, he's been uh, approved. He's got the blessing of a, of a foreign king to come back and build Jerusalem, to, to rebuild the walls, to help uh, reclaim and rebuild the glory of God, the kingdom of God. Remember, that's what the city of Jerusalem was. It was where God dwelt with his people. And he came, and, and there was opposition People had, had, had called out and said, do you realize what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? You're rebelling against the king of, of this area. And Nehemiah, of course, of course I am. I'm here to build God's kingdom. But even in the midst of that vocal opposition, the people banded together. We saw all kinds of people banded together to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the kingdom together. But now as we get into this chapter, the enemies of God, the enemies of, of God's kingdom gather together. They surround Jerusalem and they plot against God's people. There's, there's threats and warnings of attacks, and there are attacks. This is, this is the, the next level. What do they do? What do God's people do? Do they just give up? Let's have a look. We open up chapter 4, and we, we know that the construction project is well underway, uh, but the opposition does ramp up. 
Nehemiah writes for us in the beginning of chapter 4 that, that when Sanblat heard that we were rebuilding the walls, this is again, remember, he's one of the uh, opponents of God's people, opponents of Nehemiah. When he heard that we were rebuilding the walls, he became furious. Now he's already been described, this Sanblat, this opponent, as, as having mocked the Jews, as having despised the Jews, but this is more. He's enraged, your translation might say. He's, he's furious. And so he gathers together a number of colleagues and powerful men or, or armies, as it says. And he comes at them and he was furious. And so he mocks the Jews in four different ways. Four different ways we see in these first couple of verses. First, he says, what are these pathetic Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? He mocks the people themselves. Who do they think they are? Then he carries on and says, can they restore the walls themselves? He mocks the work. He goes on, will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever even be able to finish it? This is, this is a job that's way too big for them. There's no way they'll be able to do it. Then he mocks what they're trying to do and the materials they're using, the things that they're using. He says, can they bring these burnt stones back to life? This, these things have been knocked down. They, they can't do this. And then someone else, another opponent steps in, Tobiah, who we had been introduced to earlier, he steps up and says, look at what they're doing. This project they're doing, even if a fox walked on top of what they're building, he would knock it down. So they've mocked the people, the work, the materials, and the project itself. And remember, again, this project of rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, is all about uh, rebuilding God's glory. This place that, that was a picture of God's glory on earth, where God dwelt with his people. The lesson here is when, when the kingdom of God is being rebuilt, when we are working on, on growing and establishing and building God's kingdom, we will have opposition. The enemy will oppose it. You know what? Those four things that, that these guys mocked the Jews for back 2,500 years ago, I think we hear similar criticisms today, don't we? Who are these weak-minded, simple people now this religious group, they're, they're just some sort of backwater, stuck in the past kind of group. Who do they think they are? Now they're, they're fighting a losing battle. These, these ideas were proved wrong long ago, we hear. They, they don't really understand how the world works anymore. They're just stuck in the past in these, these outdated, over, overblown ideas. And they might also say that, that this worldview of, theirs, of ours that, that Christians have is it's just a house of cards and you blow on it just a little bit, the whole thing falls. How, how can you be foolish enough to believe such a thing? Has anybody heard any of those? Man, I've heard them, I've seen them, I've read them. And how, how do we respond? What can we learn from the text of, of how we respond? Do we, do we argue back? Do we push back? Do we fight back? Let me suggest that there are strong intellectual arguments against all of these criticisms. But look at Nehemiah. I, we've been in this book for a little while. You can probably guess what he does first. This is the thing that we've been trying to drive home, that I've been trying to learn, that hopefully we've been trying to learn. What do you think Nehemiah does? He reports this reading and he prays. He jumps in and says, listen, our God, for we are despised. It's not that he doesn't think God's paying attention or that God's forgotten about them and he has to kind of ring the doorbell and get God's attention again. Say, God, do you hear what they're saying about you? But he says, listen, God, we are a despised people. 
Again, if there's one thing I want to take from this series and I want you to take from this series, there's lots. It, it talks about the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, all fantastic, amazing things. But if there's one thing I want us to take home, it's this, to pray first. That's what he does, Nehemiah. He goes straight to prayer. So when we build God's kingdom, we will face opposition. But the thing we need to remember is this isn't just an us versus them physical battle either. The Bible from start to finish tells us that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. There's something going on here more than what we can see with our eyes, more than what's going on in just the physical world. Hundreds of years after Nehemiah, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6 to the church to remind us that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not just a physical fight. It's, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's Ephesians 6, 12, if you want to look there. That's a, a great chapter that would be worth your time to have another look at this week. He reminds us that there's a spiritual, going, spiritual battle going on and we're all a part of it. Peter would also say later that we have a real spiritual enemy a real spiritual enemy who is prowling around like a lion looking for anyone that he can devour. This is, this is serious. We are in a spiritual battle and fighting for the glory of God. It can seem scary. I'm not excited to go face to face with the lion that's looking to devour me. Are you? I don't think so. But again, stick with the text. Ephesians 6, that same chapter that, that Paul is writing, he says, here's the army or the armor of God so that you can stand up in battle. He doesn't say, here's some tools that hopefully if you put them on and use them just right, you'll, you'll maybe be able to outlast this thing. No, he says, this armor of God, and again, let me encourage you to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 6 this week. He says, this armor, put it on and you will stand. This is what God's given us to, to withstand the battle that we're in. Jesus also in John 16, he promises that in this world we will have trouble. It's not going to be easy. We will have battles. We will have things to overcome. But he also promises that he has overcome the world. How does, how does God respond? Well, Nehemiah prays. And, and his, his prayer sounds a lot like some of the, what we call the imprecatory psalms, where, where the psalmist calls out to God to bring justice. And so let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. Again, if you have your Bible, swipe back there with me, or flip, flip I guess, flip forward there with me in your book. And look at Psalm chapter 2. Uh, the psalmist writes this, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot, and the kings of the earth take their stand, and, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one? The kingdoms and kings of this world are, are gathered together to attack the Lord and the Lord's anointed one. That's happening in Psalm 2 time. It's happening in our time. But how does God respond to that? I love this. Look at verse 4. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Now, this isn't to say that God is, is mean and he's angry, but he looks at these, these feeble plans He's not scared. He's not surprised. He's not taken aback. He doesn't look down at the vast armies of this world and say, oh man, I think, I think this is going to be a tough one. He laughs. 
Nehemiah's prayer, again, sounds like Psalm 2 and some of the other imprecatory Psalms. These guys that are coming up to oppose him, to oppose God, have shown themselves to be God's enemies. And Nehemiah is calling on God to conquer his enemies, to overcome them, to, to bring justice for their sin. That's ultimately what he's asking for. God, they have sinned. They have been unjust. Bring your justice. Be just. Now, earlier in the book, in, in chapter 2, when the mockers came and spoke at Nehemiah and, and, and questioned him and mocked him and despised him, he, he turns and he responds to them. Maybe you remember that, but, but here he doesn't. Instead, he, he hears of the plans. He, he obviously knew something was going on because he wrote this down, right? But then he turns and speaks to God and said, God, I don't want to deal with that. I've got something to do. You've called me to this. So I'm coming to you right now. And then the whole group gets back to work. Look at verse 6. He says, so we built the wall in the face of this opposition, in the face of the, the mocking and the ridiculing. They kept after it. We built the wall to half its height. That's a big project already because the people had a heart to work, he writes in verse 6. They desired to, to push through in the midst of this opposition even. Well, this is great news. The lesson maybe we can learn here is that the construction goes on, people paid, the opposition went away, or people prayed, excuse me, people prayed. The opposition seemed to just dissolve away and, and things carried on, just like what always happens when you pray, when I pray, right? Not so much. That's not really my story, is it? Look at verse 7 and 8. continues. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites, this just continues to get bigger, this opposition, doesn't it? When they heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and the gaps were being closed, the vulnerabilities in the city were being firmed up, they became furious again. They became enraged. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. Now, this sounds a little bit more familiar to my story. As I grow, as the kingdom building project progresses, the opposition gets bigger. It doesn't fade away. The enemies are gathering, they're plotting, they're organizing themselves. And what do the people do? I, I don't know if I need to ask you this. You can probably guess what they do in verse 10. But we prayed to our God. Again, they saw the armies forming. We've got now four different groups, five different groups lining around the city, looking at it, being ready to attack, realizing that, that they couldn't just run into the, into, the, into the city through the broken walls anymore, that the project is being fulfilled. But they prayed to their God. They prayed even more. I, again, if I can't drive this home, we, I think we miss Nehemiah. The prayer is our primary weapon against opposition. It's not our last resort. It's where we need to start. See, that this battle is between Jesus and our enemy. It's not a fair fight. It's already been decided. Remember, John 16, 33, Jesus says, You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. So often, I think, when we, when we consider the, the, uh, the battle between good and evil, we assume it's two equally powerful forces coming at one another. But that's not the story of the Bible. If you think about the story of the, the rebellion when, when Satan rebelled, it took, what, maybe a snap of God's fingers and they were cast out of heaven. That's power. 
the, the, these things continue to today. God, Jesus has won. The battle is over. This is, this is not a fair fight. Jesus has won. Now, as we pray, as we face opposition, as we resist this enemy, it, it also isn't a one and done thing. You know this. You've experienced this. I'm sure I have. We don't usually pray one prayer and then that, that battle's over, that fight's gone, that struggle's done with. But it's probably more of a continual, constant battle. James 4, 7 there says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sometimes that resisting is a constant resisting, a, a hour by hour, maybe even a minute by minute, resisting the temptation of the devil. But ultimately, he will flee. So they prayed. Verse 10, they prayed, but Nehemiah posted a guard as well. They prayed, but they also took precautions. This isn't a lack of trust in God. This isn't a, a well, we prayed this thing, but oh, I've got to take care of this myself anyways and do my thing. This is, this is wisdom. This is, is, is trying to live life in a wise way, a way that makes sense, a way that is good. Now, this might all seem really good and well in theory. Okay, preacher, I get it. Pray, keep praying, take precautions. But what about in real life? This, 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 is, this doesn't ring true necessarily. Well, let's keep reading. Because the Bible is our guide and it speaks to real life. And Nehemiah stayed strong on the task. They kept going, they kept building, they made halfway through the gaps that we read. But not everyone was as firm in their conviction, firm as is their faith. All of a sudden, it seemed like the opposition started coming from everywhere. Again, look at these middle verses. In verse 10, there, there's, there's opposition that, that starts to kind of crop up from within. The people themselves seem to look around and maybe see the armies outside and, and see the, the scale and scope of the project. And they think, man, this, this is a really big job. I don't think we're ever actually going to be able to do it. There's also then opposition from the enemy where, where we hear and we read of them plotting that, that, that they say, you know, we can kind of infiltrate the city still. And before they realize it, before these feeble Israelites realize it, we'll be among them and we can kill them from within and we can stop the work. Man, that's, that's harsh. That's big opposition. So there's opposition from within. There's doubt from within. I don't know if we can do it. There's opposition from without saying, we know we're going to infiltrate. We're going to get them from the inside. And there's opposition from the, the Jews nearby too, from around them, saying, listen, wherever you turn, they keep attacking us. Whew. Man, this is everywhere. One writer says, the people seem too weak, the task seems too big, and the people recognize that they can't do it by themselves. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like that? I'm too weak. This job, this call is too big. What God's asking me to do is too much. I just can't do it. I don't know if it's that, that overcoming that addiction or that temptation. Maybe it's persevering in a relationship. It's just too big. I, I'm just going to give up because giving up is easier. Maybe it, it is standing up for faith or building the kingdom or sharing the gospel. Man, it's, it's too much. It's too hard. I'm too weak. I can't do it. Here's something that I have slowly continued to learn. That when I say that, I'm too weak. Job's too big. I can't do it. When I say that, I am exactly right. Exactly right. When I meet opposition, I cannot fight it on my own. I can't stand up to it on my own. I can't do it on my own. 
That's kind of exactly the point, isn't it? I can't do it on my own. Let's go back to our example. What does Nehemiah do in the midst of this opposition from within the doubts within the, the armies on the outside and even the, the people outside of the city, the, the Jews, the Israelites outside? Well, he does two things. Look at verse 13. He says, I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall. Again, the most vulnerable areas. He, he put guards there. He stationed them by families with their swords and spears and bows. He takes a look around at the project. He knows that this, this wisdom needs to happen. There, that something needs to go on. He needs to pray and expect God to help, but also to be wise in how he distributes his people. And so he strategically puts people together in those vulnerable areas of the city. And not just anyone, but he says that he groups people by families. So these would now be groups that are emotionally connected to one another because they love and care for one another. Here's the point. These guys, if they're emotionally connected, if they're family, they will fight for one another and they will fight hard for one another. Now, this is why we as a church, we try to create as, as many opportunities as we can to spend time together. It's why we have the gap between services so that we can have time to connect before and in between and, and after the services with one another. We want to get people together, again, whether it's between services or when we do church in the park, when we have a care group or small groups or Bible studies or bike rides or hikes or, or what all the things. We do this so that we can get to know one another, so that we can become in emotionally invested in one another's stories, so that we can fight together. That's why we do this. We fight as one. Second thing, look what he says to the people. First, he takes this wise precaution. He stations people in groups around the vulnerable areas. And then he looks at his people and he says, do not be afraid of them. Now, we've got four groups, potentially four armies lined up around the city. No doubt you can look outside the walls and you can see the armies gathering. And he says, look at them, but don't be afraid of them. Instead, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight. He says, don't think that we serve some far-off God who may or may not show up. We serve a God who has been with us the whole time. Remember, the whole time that I've been here, I've told you about how God showed up when I was far off in Susa in the king's court. And I said, I need to go back and, and rebuild the city. And the, and the king was gracious and merciful and let me come. And, and he says, remember, I've told you this whole story about how the gracious hand of God has got me from Susa to here, to this whole construction product. God is here. God is moving throughout this whole episode. Don't forget that. Don't be sidetracked by looking down at the people at only what we can see in the physical world. But remember, God is fighting for us. And where, where in your life are the battles looking just too big, too much? The army seem to be gathering and just like, I, I don't know this, I don't know. Where do you have, have doubts? Let me encourage you to lift your eyes to Jesus. Don't look at just the physical, but remember the spiritual realm that we live in. Stand together, gather together. Again, this, this is why we gather as a church. There, there's no such thing in the Bible as an individual Christian where it's just me and Jesus doing my thing. 
all the you type words in the New Testament to our plural. They talk about community. We need to gather together. We need to be together and trust God together and fight together. We need one another. Friends, when I look at the world around me and I see all that's going on and I see it's just, man, it's, it's too big. The job's too big. I'm too weak. I can't do it. I need you. I need you to speak into my life and say, no, Sean, don't look at them. Remember our great and awe-inspiring Lord. And I suspect you need the same thing. That's why we gather, my friends. Look how it turned out. Verse 15. When the enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it. Look at that. Who frustrated the schemes? It wasn't some good work by Nehemiah doing his, his wise planning. God had frustrated it. Love that. Then every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half the men did the work, while the other half held spears and shields and bows and armor. This building project was a battle, and it continued to be a battle. And so they took weapons to defend themselves. They, they clad themselves in armor so they could defend themselves. They were wise in watching where vulnerabilities might exist. They were, they were all together. The rest of the chapter describes how they walk through this together for the, the rest of the construction project where everybody's boots were on the ground. Nehemiah, the, the head of the whole thing, he was on the ground and he would head around it and make sure the most vulnerable spots were safe. And if an army tried to attack one spot, they had trumpeters and they would blow the trumpets to signal for everyone else to come fight. How did they fight? They fought together to defend the city. They kept at it. They knew they could not do it along, alone. And together, armed, eyes on God, they knew that God would fight their battles for them. How about us? Where do we need to grow together? Where do we need to arm ourselves with the word of God, with the, the sword of the spirit, with, with righteousness, with, with honor, with the shoes of the gospel, with all of that armor that's listed for us in Ephesians chapter 6? And again, not just as individuals to stand as, as uh, you know, just one person, but as a church. You know, I'm, I'm really learning to love this little book. There, there's so much to learn and there's such a great example of Nehemiah being a great kingdom builder here. When, when he and the Israelites face strong opposition from the enemies, these enemies of God who are determined to stop the restoration of Jerusalem and the, the reclaiming, the rebuilding of, of God's glorious city, Nehemiah and the Israelites responded with prayer and by trusting God who would fight their battles for them. I don't know what battles you're up against today, but I know you have them. I know there are, there are things on the horizon that look too big, like too much. When we see those things, let me remind you that we have an even better leader than Nehemiah. We have Jesus, who knows all about what it means to to walk this earth, to be tempted in every way that we have, but yet be without sin. We're going to celebrate Jesus' life and, and what he did for us, uh, showing us how to rightly relate to God and others in creation and going to the cross to pay for our sin, to be our, our great leader, to conquer our spiritual enemies with communion in just a minute. But Jesus won the battle once and for all. It's over. It's not in question. It's, there's, there's no doubt about it anymore. 
The battle is over and Jesus has won. Whatever it is that you're fighting today, let me invite you to trust in Jesus who fights for us and who can do what we cannot do on our own. One of my favorite movies, and I, I hesitate to say when it came out because it's starting to date me, is Gladiator. I don't know if you remember Gladiator, Russell Crowe movie, but there's one, one scene in it where uh, Russell Crowe or Maximus and, and others have made it to Rome for these Gladiator games, and this kind of ragtag group of slaves is, is put out in the middle of the Colosseum uh, expecting to die because that's what they did in Rome, I guess. And there's a line that, that Maximus says to the people. He says, whatever comes out those doors, whatever enemies, whatever battle we're about to fight, whatever comes out those doors, we'll do better if we stick together. If we stay together, we have a chance. If we try to go at it alone, we're all dead. But if we stick together, we can overcome whatever comes out. It's a line from a movie, but boy, is that ever true in our Christian walk as well. If we do it together, if we stick together, if we carry one another's burdens, if we lift one another up, no matter what the enemy throws at us, because of Jesus' work in us and the Holy Spirit alive and working in us and through us, we will overcome it. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this book and this word. I pray that you would encourage us to to do what it says, to arm ourselves with the, the armor of God that you've outlined for us, to, to join together, to look for vulnerabilities in our own lives and in the lives of our community and, and gather there and rebuild together. Let us not look at the world around us and, and the news or the enemies we seem to see around us gathering and just be overcome with fear and worry and all those things. But instead, let us look up to you, our glorious and awe-inspiring Lord. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.